rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So this is one of those weeks with a pretty interesting pairing, I would say, because Hell Money could really be an episode of any police procedural show, and uh, Jose Chung's could only be an X-Files episode. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that when I was watching Hell Money, too. And it's funny because I, I did not remember liking Hell Money that much. I liked it more this time, and I think yeah. it, it has some interesting elements to it which we'll talk about but it's it's a strange episode because irresistible from the second season gets a lot of attention for being the first episode of the x-files that doesn't have anything to do with supernatural or alien elements no real science fiction elements to that episode and then we get grotesque from a few weeks ago that kind of had the same thing and and now we get this episode which is strange partially because the the X-Files the X-Files non-supernatural episodes usually get a lot of attention a lot of critical attention because they're so outside yeah. of what the show normally does but how money is kind of forgotten about no one ever really talks about it i don't think anybody ever really examines the episode and it's just kind of there and i think part of the reason why is that it's an okay episode. It's a solid episode of the X-Files, but coming r- right before Jose Chung's from Outer Space, I don't think does it any favors. So it's a it's a strange episode for that reason as well, I think. But I, I think even more than that, um, Irresistible is, I mean, it's dealing with serial killer profiling, which was Mulder's wheelhouse before he got involved into the X-Files. Um, Grotesque is dealing with Mulder going into these depths of his obsession and how dark Mulder as a person can get. They are very much dealing with, and certainly Scully's relationship to Mulder in both those episodes, they are dealing with the two characters. This one, you can take, uh, you take Mulder and Scully out and you put two characters from, you know, Law and Order in, and it's the same episode you take. It, it, it really could be, you could have Bones in this episode, you know, <laughs> you could have anybody, and... I mean, I'm looking at my notes, and I don't have the name Scully or Mulder written once in... Oh, I have B.D. Wong is angry at Mulder and Scully. That's literally the only mention of them in my notes. They're just kind of side characters. It's one of those where they're side characters in their own episode. Yeah. It's very interchangeable. Yes, there is some vague uh, talk about, you know, the Pretas and the ghosts and all of that, but... Again, that could very easily be in a non-supernatural episode. The only function that it has here is that we think, okay, maybe it does have something to do with the ghosts being real. And at the end, it turns out that's just some misdirection. Mm -hmm. No, I I think that's right, because, you know, we, we talk a lot in episodes where Mulder and Scully are not really a part of their own or their own show in in negative terms and i think for the most part yeah. that's that's true that that does not work in episodes like space for example which you know is kind of our go-to example of a really really bad <laughs> x-files episode but uh i think it actually works in this episode because hell money is not about mulder and scully and it they are incidental in their own episode primarily because they are two white FBI agents going into a very, very insular community that is closing ranks and has a lot of secrets and rightly, I think, has fears about, 
you know, mainstream Americans getting into their business. Now, of course, they're also doing something that is really illegal. But, <laughs> I, you know, I, well, I don't know that that most of the people playing the game are doing something that's illegal. I guess you could make an argument that that a gambling pool is illegal, but lots of people gamble. I mean, it, you know, we're recording this on on Sunday in the fall and millions of Americans are gambling for football. So uh, it's not like people go after that very often. But yeah, but I, I, I don't know what the legal and ethical ramifications about you know, selling your organs on the black market. Like I think, well, I, I, that, yeah, I think that part's illegal. And that, that is certainly the, I mean, when they take the guy's heart and they kill him, that is very illegal. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the point I'm getting at is that the, the, the people playing the game are doing something illegal. Is it that bad? You could make an argument for and against. I think, you know, libertarians, for example, would certainly argue that maybe people should be able to sell their organs. And um, yeah, but I think that libertarians should should give their organs away, by which I mean, I think people should remove the organs of libertarians against their will. But that's a different story. That's a different story. But I <laughs> but I do think that that certainly the doctor and the guy running the game are doing something illegal and, and the game is also fixed. I mean, certainly if, yeah. if let, you know, if we, if we spin this out for, for, a, for a thought exercise and say, okay, we live in a libertarian paradise where this kind of thing is yes. legal and everyone is, it's on the up and up, you know, I still do think that there would be protections in place. For example, the fact that the game is rigged, right. And that it seems to me that the rigging is they need some sort of organ whatever it is because someone says hey i need a kidney so they put a bunch yeah. of kidney uh chips in the bowl and then that's what happens and so you know that that is sort of the the most egregious thing in the episode i think um but at the end of the day you know it is the case that i don't know that this episode is necessarily trying to make any sort of strong argument it's it's trying to tell a very particular story and it's trying to ground it in a very particular community I don't know that it's I don't know that it's completely successful, but mm. at least it's not embarrassing. It's not Tesa dos Bichos. I mean that that's the other thing. Yes, this is coming before Jose Chung, but it's coming after Tesa dos Bichos. So it, you know, gets a couple of points for not being that episode. Yeah, certainly. I, and I and I also think that, you know, a small just a just as a small example, you know, there there is a lot of spoken Chinese in this episode. Mm. There are a lot of subtitles in this episode. And we are talking about a network television show in nineteen ninety six. So that in it in and of itself shows to me that they were trying to at least respect Chinese culture, if not I don't know. It's weird because you could make the argument they're trying to respect Chinese people, but not Chinese culture. I, I don't know. I'm not sure because they. Uh, this episode certainly has a very uh, difficult relationship with it, incarnated in the B.D. Wong character, who is somebody who, even more so than Scully feel and Mulder, feels himself to be very between these two worlds, as he says at one point. Listen, you know, and. and you know, while he is, of course, lying through most of the episode, I believe the sincerity of the part when he's saying, you know, listen, I'm American born. They think I'm just as white as you, you know, and he also says stuff like, you know, I'm worried about the mortgage on my house. But at the same time, like I'm dealing with 2000 years of tradition mm -hmm. here. You know, he is somebody who is between these very be between two di very different cultures and he is unable to square the circle. And the only way he can do that is by becoming corrupt and by taking this, you know, by turning the blind eye and turning, you know, people off from investigating this very illegal thing. I think this, um, 
he has been manipulated in his way into believing that this gambling ring is Chinese culture when maybe it really isn't quite, you know what I mean? I mean, it's certainly not the best that the culture has to offer. Something like the father's love for his daughter, I would say, is a more pure and noble expression of that kind of a thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And, I, you know, part of the thing that I think is so difficult about this episode is that, you know, obviously the game was made up. This is not something that, that actually happens. Yeah. Uh, and it, I don't know, because we get we get to this point in, in a lot of X-Files episodes that, that deal with cultures that are not sort of, you know, Western European or, or American or, you know, Canadian or whatever, like sort of that Western uh, uh, cultural uh, signifiers. And I don't know to what degree this episode is is irresponsible. I, I always feel like with episode, I mean, I think about Shapes, I think about Tasos dos Bichos, I think about um, even like Anasazi, for example, a lot of these episodes are dealing with Native American Indian cultures. This is dealing with a, a you know, Chinese American context. But I don't know if it's, you know, I, I think about it in the lens of 1996 America yeah. or even now, you know, is this irresponsible? I, I don't know, because certainly you can make the case that you can't police people's art. And I, I think that's OK to, to say. But you can also say that you have to have some sort of responsibility to portray these cultures in a way that is at least somewhat accurate. Yeah. And. I don't know if this is. I mean... Yeah. I mean, there is a... I think this is engaging... Not... you know, To say this is engaging with Chinese culture isn't quite the full story. This is dealing with Chinese immigrant culture. I mean, this is right. very specifically, you know, the Bay Area Chinatown. So this is a very particular subculture within America. Again, X-Files tries to deal with all of these little pockets of America. I mean, this isn't that different from, uh, for example, Humbug in that it is, you know, a, an insular community that has its own rules and its own social mores. Sure. And, you know, Scully and Mulder attempting to get to this, you know, look kind of ridiculous. But, and I also think there is a degree where uh, the guy running the game is abusing the culture himself. He is taking this legend of, you know, these hungry ghosts, which is a way of, you know, I, I, B.D. Wong says at one point, you know, these are, you know, ancestors are, the, you know, the core of Chinese spirituality, mm -hmm. which, you know, maybe that's overstating the case slightly, but my understanding of Chinese spirituality is that they are very prime in that. And, you know, uh, I would say that he is twisting this legend in order to exploit these people. I mean, he, one of the things that he says when the, uh, when Lucy Liu's father is trying to get out of the game, oh, well... You know, they say that if you break the game, you know, the predators are going to get you. And, you know, that that's just as that's just like saying, you know, you need to get be capitalist because Jesus will send you to hell if you don't. I mean, that that's the equivalent of that. So I think I think, if the, you know, he is the one who is most perverting this culture in this episode. Yeah, certainly. And I, I, I mean, I kind of compared him to the cigarette smoking man in my notes. I, I called him the Chinese cigarette smoking man. because I, I, I think that's deliberate. He looks kind of like him. And at yeah. the end, he is smoking a cigarette. And, you know, I, I'm sure he watched, you know, the cigarette smoking man's performance a few times to influence on that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, he just kind of has that air about him. And I think you're I think you're right. But at the same time, I, I kind of think that. What what I think is interesting, and I, I guess I'll just ask this question to you outright, is do you think the X-Files is engaging with cultures that are not that, let's say, 
knowledge. Like, Americans are not that knowledgeable about Chinese immigrant culture, for example. Yeah. Uh, is the X Files dealing with these cultures in a way that is that is signifying some sort of um, that is making them supernatural? Right. If if you understand my question, because like I think of the frog stuff and. Mm. That has a very particular – that's never really explained, right? But you could just say, well, they put a frog in the guy. I don't know. Whatever. Like, huh. it doesn't really matter. But at the end of the day, they are kind of trying to draw some sort of comparison or some sort of uh, uh, parallelism between Chinese Im- immigrant culture and, and the supernatural. And, and I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I guess my thing is – I can see why this organization would use the trappings of this mythology, why they would... I mean, let's face it, the guys in the masks, that they're really creepy. That's a very creepy image, and they are certainly using this creepy imagery in order to keep people playing this game. So that right. is very deliberate, but the frog comes out of somebody who is buried and not expected to be found. It's only because, you know, Mulder is Mulder that he finds the body. It's only because Scully is Scully that she finds the frog, you know, and... It's not like they were going to see that anyway, so there must be some deeper purpose. And do, do you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. Like who was who was the frog for? The frog wasn't done to intimidate somebody else who would find the body because they didn't expect the body to be found. Well, I mean, you, you, I mean, I'm kind of spinning my wheels here, or kind of extrapolating out because the the episode doesn't give us that information. But, but you can yeah. make an argument that you know, even as sort of mercenary as as the Chinese cigarette smoking man and the doctor and and all those people are about the game and and using the sort of respect that these men and I mean, yeah. I think it's you know we have to be clear that these are all men too, which is something very uh, I think that is trying to say something about Chinese immigrant culture or Chinese culture in general, that they're using some of the trappings of the culture to keep these men in line while at the same time, perhaps they are also honoring it. Like, because they are still products of this culture and yes, they are more, uh, you know, like the, the doctor and the Chinese cigarette smoking man, we, we could, assume perhaps that they are more educated than most of the men playing this game uh you know one of them is a doctor and one of them is a carpet installer and i'm not saying anything about the carpet installer's intelligence just perhaps his um you know his his educational uh you know attainment that the guy at the beginning is a dishwasher maybe not so much educational attainment as opportunities that because I, I, I think this episode does make it clear that opportunities for these people are very limited. I, 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 the guy, you know, it's it's the cliche, I was a doctor in my home country and now I drive a taxi cab kind of a thing. Because Well, it's funny you say that because I, I actually was listening to a podcast yesterday about Canadian immigration policy because that's what I like to do in my free time. And <laughs> uh, one of the things that they, they, they said about it is that that is very, uh, that's actually a cliche in, in Canadian sort of immigration uh, politics that, that, that actually does happen in Canada because Canada has this very different immigration system to the United States where you get a lot of points for being educated and they get a lot of really, really educated people that are working in professions like doctor, lawyer, you know, engineer, et cetera. And Canada is a relatively small country with a relatively in population, not in size. Yeah. They don't need 
a ton of doctors. They don't need a ton of engineers. And so what happens is they get these engineers, these doctors, these professionals that are yeah. that are immig- immigrating to Canada that can't get a job in what they trained in and what they worked in in their home country. So they, they do end up doing things yeah. like driving taxis. That is a real thing. I don't think that happens as often in the United States because we don't have that kind of immigration system. You know, we generally get a lot more immigrants that are not educated, um, that are doing jobs that Americans don't want to do. Uh, that doesn't really happen in Canada. They don't have a lot of immigrants moving to Alberta to work in the oil fields, for example. Yeah. So, you know, I think that if you look at the episode in that context as well, it's kind of a, you know, these are these are people that are doing jobs that perhaps Americans don't want to do, you know, dishwasher, carpet installer. These are not really high paying jobs. They're not really glamorous. They don't have a lot of cachet in the culture. And I mean, to be frank about it, these are also people that that probably are, are kind of invisible to the larger American culture. And so if they go missing, well, who cares? And as it turns out, of course, Mulder and Scully care because they're Mulder and Scully. But that's more of a a happy accident than anything else. Yeah. And frankly, if uh, the poor dishwasher from the beginning didn't get burned alive in this manner that resembles a larger pattern that Mulder has noticed, I mean, that's really the only moldery thing he does was that you know when he says oh actually 11 people have died this way because he follows the news of the weird that's how he gets involved in this case uh you know if he had just been killed and buried and they never found the body that would be a different story right and i you know i think that that going back to the frog for a second to kind of wrap that point up i think that the frog to me is an indicator that the people that are running this game are at least you know they are also products of their culture and they are doing things that are respecting the culture as well you know they did not anticipate anybody would find the frog but you know you could certainly make the argument that the frog is something that the culture tells them to do and that they did it because they want to honor that culture yeah you could certainly be doing this for purely mercenary reasons and just figure well just in you know I probably don't believe in these kinds of ghosts, but just in case, you know, you know, everybody ends up happy then at the end. And I mean, that is the, you know, Chinese cigarette smoking man's point at the end that I'm giving these people hope and I'm giving them this chance to, you know, they believe in this. And, you know, obviously, while his expression may be complete bullshit, this is a this is a very hopeless group of people. I mean, I think it's very clear they don't have health insurance. They don't have much money. They don't have many opportunities. Right. You know, they came to America for the land of opportunity kind of a thing. They're handed the shit end of the stick. Uh, Lucy Liu's father openly wonders at some point, you know, if he's been cursed for leaving his home, you know, because everything is going so bad. And, you know, this is maybe their desperate. I mean, this is a very desperate episode. This is their way of trying to placate something that maybe exists, maybe doesn't exist. But you know, they need to do something. Right. Yeah. Because I, I, I do wonder about the I mean, I'm glad you brought up Lucy Liu as well, because I, I wonder about that thread of the plot. You know, is that is that too manipulative to, to give this guy a daughter who is dying of, of a very easily treatable cancer, as Scully says? You know, I, I don't know. And I think that it, 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 it grounds his desperation, of course, into a very sort of altruistic motive. He doesn't want money so he can buy yeah. a fancy car and, and, you know, go to parties. He, he wants to, to help his daughter not die. And I, I don't know. I think that this is not a subtle episode at all. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that the X-Files in general. Well, I was about to say the X-Files is not a subtle show. I think in, in some senses it is, but this episode certainly is not. And 
I, I just, I don't know how I feel about Lucy Liu's character being in the episode. I, I don't know. It, it makes it almost too black and white to me. Yeah, and I think that is fair to say at the same time. Uh, and, yeah, this is happening in 2017, you know, this I'm watching in 2017 when we have people are trying to fuck up healthcare even more. And, you know, the the... The undercurrent of this episode is that if these people had health insurance, this would not be maybe the case, certainly, you know, if, if her treatment were covered somehow. And, you know, I, I I don't think it's incidental that we see a couple of shots of, you know, after he's had his eye removed, you know, it's seeping blood at one point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's probably not, he's probably not getting the best aftercare. And frankly, he's back the next night and they're willing to take his other eye, you know, right away. As, you know, as we were saying, you know, Maybe there would be some rules in the libertarian paradise, haha. But at the very least, it's very funny that they would let him do this two days in a row. Like you'd think there'd be a gee, just heal up from that before you go again. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we are we are definitely talking about a time when you know Rand Paul, for instance, um, you know, said that he wouldn't. We were we're recording this um, in in September, so you know, who knows what the hell's happened? We might all be dead because Trump started a nuclear war with North Korea, but. Um, if you are wandering the wasteland with the last 20% on your phone listening to this, I, I wish you luck in finding some canned goods. Uh, but, it, you know, it is the case that, that you know, Rand Paul, for instance, said that he, he will not vote for uh, the, the Graham-Cassidy repeal bill because it, it doesn't go far enough. And, you know, I, I don't know what to really say about that other than... I hope Rand Paul gets cancer. Fuck, That's untreatable. You know. <laughs> no, I don't want him to die. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I definitely... I don't know. I, I struggle with this question because, and you know, I don't want to turn this into a, a podcast about healthcare, but <laughs> you know, I, I certainly struggle with this because I just had a person that I tangentially knew on the internet um, die from cancer at a very young age, oh. like my age, uh, because he worked a fast food job and had no health insurance and was apparently uh, sick for a year to the point where he wasn't able to eat. Um, and just found out that he had cancer like two weeks before he died because he didn't have health insurance. So, you know, if you were listening to this podcast uh, outside of America, um, you know, I know that people like to make jokes about America and Americans, but but we live in a really, really shitty country that, that has a lot of real problems. And, you know, when we tell you things are getting increasingly bad here to the point that I am worried about uh, perhaps wanting to emigrate out of this country, uh, you should listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, it's not for nothing that Vince Gilligan, the X-Files alum, would go on to create a show where a guy uh, sells meth because he has, you know, cancer that he can't afford treatment for. I mean, that's not a... <laughs> that's not incidental. Yes, that is not incidental. Well, maybe the last thing to mention before we move on to, to Jose Chunks from Outer Space, because I honestly have no idea how we're even going to begin to talk about that episode. So so anything to push that down, the kick that can down the road in a couple yeah. more minutes uh, is is B.D. Wong, right? Like, yeah. you know, we, we kind of mentioned his character before and we talked about him tangentially a little bit. And I, I don't know that there's a ton to say about his character, but he is... Well, A, he's a very uh, comely man. Um, and he, he likes men to comely on him. He does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that... What do you make of his character? Like, like he is a very, very particular type of character that I don't think we've really seen in the X-Files before. And he comes to a very bad end. I don't know that I would necessarily think that he's getting what he deserves. But maybe he is. I don't know. 
I think the episode is mostly his journey from recognizing where his desperation has taken him. Again, I have to take that speech that he makes about how he is trapped, you know, how people think of him just as white as that. And again, he has been very manipulated into, you know, hiding the the existence of this organization. Uh, He's been guilted into it. He has been... Again, you have the the cigarette smoking man in this episode is very good at getting people at weaponizing the culture in order to get people to do what he wants. And, you know, the B.D. Wong character wants to be a part of this community that he believes he should be part of, but has been taken out from. And so, you know, maybe the best he can do is be the pet cop that's on the take, you know, and it's the wrong decision. And I think this episode you know, particularly meeting Lucy Liu's character kind of is what convinces him that, no, I am doing the wrong thing. This is going beyond the pale and that ultimately he needs to make the right choice. And I'd say he gets punished for his attempt at redemption. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good way to put it. And, and, and at the end of the day, again, like I said before, I don't think that necessarily him getting burned alive uh, is a, is a fitting punishment, but guess it's good that he got punished well you know i would like to see it it would be better for him to face justice rather than being rather than retaliation sure and at the end he only sees retaliation yeah yeah i think that's a good way to put it and i think that's a good place to leave hell money But before we move on to Jose Chung's From Outer Space, I do want to take a quick opportunity to remind all of you, the loyal listeners of tuning in, that this podcast and our other podcast track about is listener supported. If you have the financial means, we would love for you to donate to us to give us a little bit of money to pay all of the costs associated with putting this show out on a weekly basis for you, week in and week out, every single week for years. Uh, We have never missed a week. We are very devoted to this show and to track about, obviously. And, uh, you know, it it takes up a lot of time. It takes up a lot of resources. And uh, like I said, it does cost us money. So if you would like to donate, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow right now. All right, let's talk about Jose Chung's from Outer Space. This is a very different episode than I imagined it was going to be, because especially with the way you, uh, you know, the way you say the name of it, Jose Chung's from Outer Space, I got the image of this dive takeout restaurant run by an alien or something like that, and, you know, Mulder and Scully investigating. <sighs> and, of course, it turns out to be very different from that. Um, Darren Morgan has this reputation for writing comedy episodes, that, but they turn so depressing at the end. I mean, there is just this desire for connection with something higher that just people can never quite get to in the end yeah well i i think that the weird thing about jose chung's from outer space is that it is a surprisingly slight episode for darren morgan's last episode of Mm -hmm. the x-files and and i'm not saying that to denigrate it i think it's a really really fantastic episode and i do think there are some some deep things here about you know memory and and how we experience things and, and et cetera et cetera which we'll all talk about but he knew this was going to be his last script. He, I think he had made the decision to, to leave the show uh, at the end of the third season. And so we are getting towards the end of the third season. We've got four more episodes and then we're, we're out of it. 
and and so he knew this was going to be the last episode he wrote for the show of course it was not because like yes what 20 years later he comes back and, and writes an episode um for the 10th season but which actually richard i will mention to you only because it is the rare example of an episode of television that was actually rewritten for it was written originally for another show and Darren Morgan rewrote it for the new X-Files. Okay. That is your like bugaboo. That is your little. I've read a lot of that happening. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen sometimes Uh, that. And he put a lot of stuff in this episode that he wanted to do because he knew this was going to be his last episode. And, and also that, the last thing I'll say about the background of this episode is that the idea of, of a couple being abducted by aliens was the first idea for an X-Files script, apparently, that Darren Morgan ever had. You know, that's what he said, okay. believe him or not. And I have no reason not to believe him. So for all of those reasons, I think this is a really interesting episode. But, you know, I don't know where to start with it because it's so it's it's dense. There's a lot going on here. I. I- this is an episode, well, let me, because this is an episode where I have more to say, like, more of a capper to say about it. I have more to say about the overall themes fitting within this show as about the search for a deeper spiritual truth. Right. I think that might be too broad of a thing to get to, but, I mean, maybe. I don't think so. Okay, beginning at the end, I mean, this episode. Scully's journey through the X-Files is becoming is becoming a spiritual journey for her, right? After revelations where she decides at the end that she's seeing signs from God after um what was the one uh recently the myth, myth arc episode where uh you know saying other than sign from God, you know, we have no way of finding out who did right. this. Um things like that. Scully is seeing these things and what and what she is taking them is is a sign that there is a deeper spiritual truth out there. And I think this episode is very much a... It's dealing with how difficult finding that spiritual truth is because of the very nature of that truth being ineffable. Um, You Mm -hmm. have a situation in this where everybody experiences something, and where they take that something is all of these wildly different places. There's certain things that people say that people agree on there's certain things that happen that people agree on but for the most part this is akin to a mystical experience that has left these people very troubled and some of them have gotten at the end get meaning from it and managed to use it to ha- enrich their lives um this rocky guy who at the end is leading this weird little cult uh the woman from the beginning who uses it to inspire her to join Greenpeace and Amnesty International. Uh, But then people like the boy at the end who is just kind of lost and in the same exact spot he's in at the beginning, except maybe a little worse off. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to unpack there. And and, and I think what I'll say first is that you're you're right, that this episode is really about the X-Files, I think, in a way that is almost i mean it's making the subtext text i mean i think that a lot of darren morgan's episodes have been about the x-files this is about the experience of watching the x-files and this is about the but it's also about the experience of all of these people it's about you know it's kind of taking a real look at the the character of jose chung comes into the episode and 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 he is this truman capote type played brilliantly by charles nelson riley who 
is writing a book about a real event that happened, that there was uh, some something happened in this town to these two people, and it's really on the periphery of, okay, I need to figure out what happened to these mm-hmm. people because I am writing a book about it. And so that is the framing device of the episode. And not incidentally that I think he says that his one motivation is not the search for truth, but he just thinks, you know, this is, I'll get a lot of money from this. This is going to be just such a weird new thing that, you know, it'll be a bestseller immediately. I mean, right, right. And and I also think that the two that, you know, episodic television generally plays fast and loose with, with time in a way that I don't think serialized television can necessarily get away with. You know, so, so you say, okay, well, well, Scully is at a very particular point in her journey through the X-Files. And my question to you is, is she? Because this episode, at the end of the episode, she's reading the book. And, you know, books yeah. take a while to write and, and actually get published. I mean, this this could have been a, a year, year and a half, two-year process. So when the actual interview is taking place and the end of the episode yeah. when she is reading the book, that could have been a very broad period of time that that is just kind of collapsed and elided in this episode. Yeah, I, this could be the actual abduction happened in season one. Jose Chung visits her in season two, and now it's the end of season three and she's writing it. My counter to that would be that even though this this is becoming more serious for her post-revelations, uh, Scully's Catholicism is an element that has been from the beginning. And yeah. This kind of a spiritual journey is a lifelong search for people. So this, I I think to a degree it doesn't necessarily matter. And especially because, uh, I mean, Darren Morgan wrote this probably post-Revelations. Darren Morgan wrote this later on after Mm -hmm. this. And he is putting the themes of this into a larger context, which has been baked into the show since the beginning i mean i i I think there was a season one episode where you know scully says you know i want to believe in a more spiritual context where um and again i think this show is very interested in it has these two catchphrases i want to believe which i mean the first after the cold opening uh the first shot is of that poster i mean we we are supposed to remember that and keep that very significantly uh in this episode well, well I, and, I mean i, I want to be clear though that, that i don't think it i don't think the timeline matters either yeah and i, I actually like the fact that the episode plays fast and loose with it i mean it, it's much more interested in because in a certain sense i think the the collapsing timeline is is an argument for the episode mm-hmm. because it really is an episode about how people experience events what is truth you know what what do we experience what do we not experience what can we take away from things with incomplete information you know what sort of sense do we make of these events if we make any sense of them at all and and like you said the end of the episode shows that the characters involved making very different choices yeah. about how they're going to make sense of these events and that is really, I think, what the end of the episode is about in terms of what Mulder does and what Scully does. I mean, you know, Mulder does not talk to Jose Chung. He refuses to talk to him. I think that makes sense for Mulder's character, that Mulder's character, you know, he does not really think that this is a man that is taking this seriously. And so Mulder is not going to bother with him. Right. And, and even even worse than that, I mean, his visit to Jose Chung at the end, which if I mean, it is the kind of episode where we have to look at every scene and say, you know, did this really happen or not? But, you know, that way does lie madness. I mean, that scene, he actually believes the book, believes Jose Chung's attitude towards this is very harmful because he is trying to put a, 
an explanation onto an ineffable experience, which will, by definition, cheapen that experience. Yeah. Well, I that, that I mean, that's a really good point. I don't even know if you realized you made it, which is that most of this episode, 40 minutes or so, uh, is all people's impressions of what happened. It's not what happened. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is the most brilliant part of the episode is that we have this idea that television is showing us things that happen. And, and for most of and, and well, you know, we'll ground this in the X-Files because we can't talk about television as a whole. But that, that when you watch an X-Files episode, the, the implication is that you're watching an objective dramatization of what is happening, right? Like, this yeah. is not a subjective... Uh, portrayal of the event this is this is a camera is there and and something is happening and it is capturing that and that is what is happening and i I think that in this episode the only two scenes that you could argue are objective in the way that most x-files episodes are viewed or portrayed as objective are the interview scene that that frames the episode right the interview process with with jose chung and scully in Mulder's office and then i think the the last scene with Mulder, where he goes to jose chung's office i think those two scenes are are, are ve- very clear to me that the episode is saying that those two scenes are that objective reality that the x-files usually portrays see and, and funny then, and, then not- and then everything else around the episode all of the episodes that take place in the past with the investigation and and the scenes that take place at the end where jose chung is literally narrating what the people are doing <laughs> those are all impressions and and uh, uh subjective interpretations of the events that happen we never see any of that see i would even go as far to say the only scene that i can agree exists is scully reading the book at the end i think the rest of it is it could even be argued to be well she's imagining uh you know what Mulder is doing and what you know this girl is doing and what rocky is doing and she's recollecting the interview which itself is colored by her own memories and her own impressions of that and you could uh, argue that i i tend not to that way does lie madness because it is the framing device for the episode and and so i think the episode does need to have that as an objective piece for the episode to work even if that is an objective piece, much of the stuff that we are seeing is several levels down. We are hearing Jose Chung tell about his interview with somebody and repeating the story that they're telling him. So we're several layers down. And, I mean, in the most obvious version, this the UFO guy wants to get kidnapped, you know, when he's... Yeah, the scene was there were two men in black, and one of them, you know, was really badly looking like a woman. And, you know, Scully goes up, if you tell anybody, you're dead. I mean... That's not the Scully that we know. That's obviously he wants to be in this conspiracy drama himself. And this mm-hmm. is, you know, the, the, the stress and the excitement of everything is causing him to remember it in this way. Uh, we, we, we more can likely, you know, as, as we see, you know, Scully invites Scully and Mulder invite him to the autopsy. Right, right, yeah, and I and I think that 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 autopsy scene is great, of course, yeah. because that that's layer upon layer that they think something is actually happening, and that is the part of the episode as well. You know, you see the autopsy in a subjective reality, and then you see the actual tape of the autopsy, yeah. but it's it's the case that I mean, I'm trying to remember because I think that that Jose Chung is looking at the tape of the autopsy when he is 
interviewing Scully, right? And so yeah. you kind of get this weird layer upon layer where, you know, it's it's kind of, I mean, you know, someone like Hitchcock, Hitchcock famously did this in, uh, in Rear Window where, you know, Rear Window is about the, the voyeurism of watching movies. And, and that is a very, very small example of that where Jose Chung and scully are yeah. i mean that's another that's another example as well that the the show this episode in particular is taking place over a very long time period because there was enough time for the stupendous happy <laughs> to like do this whole tape thing and sell it and bring it out so yeah of course and i think it's you know the, the way it is presented she says you know oh it was so embarrassing and you see this where it's this really creepy you know very obviously cherry-picked scenes and then she says well they didn't even go with the most interesting stuff about it and you're thinking well what was it really and then of course that it turns out to be a fellow in a costume right you know is the punchline and then again people in this episode are telling stories out of a very particular agenda and yappy and his producers are telling this story to sell this mysterious tape that they know is you know it if we are to believe Skelly's story about it, which we have no necessary, we don't necessarily have any reason not to. Um, if we are to believe Scully's story about it, they edited that way because this was a nothing thing, right? Well, that that brings up the other, I think, key question that the episode is is poor, is really putting out there and not answering, which is that you know everyone in this episode has a very particular agenda for a how they're interpreting these events and b how they are recounting them after the fact Mm -hmm. you know uh uh, rocky certainly has an agenda uh chrissy has an agenda um that the dude she was on the date with has the agenda um uh the space above and beyond guy has an agenda you know he's sort of like a a proto molder in a sense he really wants to believe well he's more of like a max i guess than anybody else or or a you can kind of see him getting getting along with the lone gunman for example um and maybe the only other way this episode would have been even more meta if if the lone gunman had been in it but (laughs) um Maybe Darren Morgan didn't like the Lone Gunman, actually, now that I think about it, because I don't think they ever appeared in any of his episodes. And you would think that he would be able to... He deals very well with outsized characters like that. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. The plot of the episode almost is incidental, and, you know, I did a little reading, and there are you know plenty of people who try to reconstruct what exactly happened, and it is funny how little I care. It doesn't really matter whether this is... You know, the military is doing an experiment and then a real alien comes and then, you know, or this is done to distract that. What is the military's agenda in this? What is it doesn't really matter because at the end, I I, I think the episode's point is that the truth may be out there, but we can't understand it necessarily. That doesn't absolve us of the need to search for the truth. It doesn't denigrate the importance of that quest but at the end i think it is and i mean this is one of the things behind both uh spirituality and science right that yeah uh, we can't we can never 100 percent understand reality in every single facet just because as humans we are by nature limited whether that's talking about you know the molecular nature of the universe or the nature of god we will never be able to exactly get it any attempts will be a a model or a metaphor or an approximation or a reaching towards and even this this experience again i i say this is a mystical experience because i mean mean, 
like this Lord Kinboat character. Number one, Kinboat is the name of the narrator in Pale Fire, who is a unreliable narrator, and that's obviously, you know, we are to be in that wheelhouse. That's uh, an in-joke on Darren Morgan, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean... But, but, but I, I think, you know, Rocky's taught, when he talks about it, when he's uh, reading his manifesto that's in screenplay format, uh, Kinboat is talking very vividly, right? Be thou not afraid. And he takes him on this spiritual journey, and as wacky and ridiculous as Rocky's spiritual journey is, and as and a hilarious is the, you know, unless your soul gets eaten by the lava, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, it is an attempt to get a spiritual truth from this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting that, I mean, I'm not surprised that people out there have, have tried to piece together a narrative of, of what actually happened in this episode. But, and I, I'm not denigrating anyone whose interests lie in that direction, but, but I think it doesn't matter, yeah. right? And that's part of the point of the episode is that, you know, the, you know, at the end of the day, we are watching a television show. And so if this episode in particular is a sort of postmodern meta look at what it is like to watch an episode of The X-Files, that's as far as it goes. And that's kind of why I say the episode yeah. is strangely slight for as dense it is, as it is. Yeah. Because, you know, Darren Morgan obviously is trying to say something with this episode, but I don't know that, that it's that hard to figure out. I think this episode pretty much... Uh, wears its interest on its sleeve, and it's very easy to figure out what uh, uh what the episode is actually trying to say. I mean, it's trying to yeah. say that there is no objective truth here. That you know what is happening is colored by our own perceptions, and that is what it is at the end of the day. Yeah. Now, I also think that that you could make this strong argument that uh, most everything that happens has a explanation that is pretty mundane except for lord kimboat uh i would also argue that it's it's one of the rare missteps of the episode is that uh uh so another character mentions lord kimboat aside from rusty um i think it would have been stronger if, if that had been a confabulation of his entirely but but you have one of the guys in the alien costume mention him so then you're like okay well what actually is going on here is that the one element of this episode that is uh, uh actually science fictional in truth I, you know i don't well, know and number but one doesn't even let, matter i don't know well let's talk about the context in which the air force guy mentions lord kinboat that is Mul that is scully's recollection of Mulder's recollection of that conversation and we we it could be an error on Mulder's part. It could be an error on Scully's part. He could say, "Yes, I saw somebody else. I saw a third entity." And Mulder, you know, and you know, several months later, with Scully not quite consulting her notes, she could confuse it and think he said this name, Lord Kinboat. That was in you know what's his name's uh, manifesto. It's sure it, it is possible for there to be that slippage, but. I, I think at the end, everybody sees from this what they want to see. I mean, it's not incidental that the... I, I, I think it's pretty important that the episode begins with, you know, this guy, you know, the guy saying to the girl, oh, I love, I, I'm in love with you. I, I, I feel so close to you. And you think, okay, this is a couple that's been going together for a while. And, you know, he's finally letting her know the depth of his feelings for her and realizing this. And then she says like, I like you a lot, but this is our first date. And then we have a very different interpretation of this, of, the, of, of their relationship. I mean, he is seeing, well, we, we he, have a very different interpretation of their relationship, but, but that is also, I mean, that is a really smart way to, to start yeah. the episode because 
it is already telling us that this is going to be an episode that is about people that are taking the same information that they're seeing yeah. and experiencing and interpreting it in very different directions. Yeah, he is somebody who is seeing what he wants to see in her. She, again, seems nice, but her interests turn out to be in other places, and she's going to move on. He's just a guy who asked her out in some way, and... You know, he has this obsession that even a couple of years later, you know, for going through the extended timeline suggestion from this. Yeah, because I, I, I think, you know, I think I think about her final line. Love is that all you men think, about? <laughs> you know, like in, in, a, in a in a in a writer that has the ability to create some really memorable lines. I think that this episode has perhaps the most of them. And you know, it. it I mean, I think about um, um, Jose Chung's line, he ate a whole pie in that fashion. And, and yeah. part of it, of course, is Charles Nelson Reilly's line reading, which is which is fantastic. But, you know, I also think that that scene is really interesting because it, it highlights another element of this idea about how people are interpreting events and how they are, you know, telling them after the fact, which is that people lie too. I mean, it's not just that they, they're experiencing events in a particular fashion and interpreting them through their own life experiences, but, but sometimes people lie. I mean, yeah. do we really think that Mulder sat there and ate a whole pie? And, and, I don't. And especially it's not so much that he sat a whole, ate a whole pie, but he matches pie for question. Like he asks eight questions yeah. and, and again, you can imagine in reality that this diner owner says, yeah, this guy came in, he ate pretty much, he pretty much ate an entire pie, he just kept eating piece after piece and asking me all these questions, and you know, in Jose Chung's mind, that goes into this very methodical and weird, he's eating a pie, answering a question, eating a pie, asking a question and such. Well, that's the other thing, too, is that, you know, we haven't really talked about Jose Chung's motivation except for money in this episode, but I think that that does color how he is describing the events because he has a vested interest in making the interpretation of all these events as strange as possible because that means the book will sell more. Are you ready for my fan theory? And this goes with my imagined idea of what this episode is about. Uh because Charles Nelson Riley looks neither like a Jose nor a Chung in a way. And so I'm almost thinking in terms of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a character named Ford Prefect because he sees all these cars and he thinks it's a common name. Like, what if Jose Chung is himself an alien? What if he is Lord Kinboat, who is writing this book in order to make this wacky discreditation of alien theory to get at people off of his track? That's my fan theory. It's as good as any I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, does it matter? Not really. But, no. You know, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, it could be, sure. Um, I mean, he is an interesting character in his own right, of course, because Charles Nelson Riley is a very particular yeah. sort of actor. And I, I think he's probably, most people don't really know who he is anymore, which I think is a shame. But if anybody knows him, I think it's either for this episode or, or for the 70s match game, which he was on a lot. Mm-hmm. Um but he was an actor that was around for, for years, uh, and he, he does a very good job of playing a Truman Capote type. Yeah, and I, 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 yes, there is the money, but I think that's also a little bit of a dodge from this character, because there is the part when he's saying to Skelly that one of the reasons he's so fascinated with the act of writing is how it lets you get into another person's head and manipulate their thoughts just with words. I mean, that yeah. that is... Something so many authors, you know, will talk about that, you know, reading is like telepathy. You have this idea in your head, you write it down, and somebody else reads it, and they 
I mean, especially at the ending, if we take that, you know, the scenes of Mulder and Chrissy and everybody is Scully imagining where they're at based on what she's reading in the in, in, in the book, that gives another particular motivation for Tose Chung in order to have this kind of control over reality. I mean, a lot of writers feel that they have a you know, right because they have a lack of control over their lives, but mm-hmm. they create a world in which in which they do. And so, you know, much as Jose Chung has heard about this experience and he doesn't understand it himself, but even though putting words to it may cheapen the experience, it also makes it comprehensible and a little less scary. If this is just a bunch of people who had an ex- had a random experience and they got a bunch of wacky stuff out of it and that was the end of it, that's a lot less scary than knowing that there is some kind of entity out there and we don't know if it's benevolent or not. Yeah. Well, cause I think that, that that's, that's the other thing about the episode too, is that, you know, it, it's very interesting that he does talk about, about hypnosis because, yeah. you know, you, like you said, I mean, you definitely can, I think the episode is making the argument and Jose Chung is making the argument that the, the writing process itself and, and sort of the, the act of reading a book is a form of hypnosis. You know, I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been hypnotized. I have been hypnotized um, once, and I will not go into the details because it's not appropriate for this podcast. But it's a very interesting experience because we have this we have this kind of idea that hypnosis puts people into some sort of trance, and it it doesn't. My my understanding (laughs) is it's a little more like a kind of a guided meditation, except it's specifically designed to help people relax enough to. a light certain you, blocks of repression in their mind, like that kind of a thing. You are very susceptible to suggestion, and I was surprised at the results of that. Okay. But it is the case that it is not. I mean, it is more like a guided meditation. I mean, you are aware of what is happening. You are not sort yeah. of asleep or unconscious or in some sort of trance. It is, you know, you are actually conscious and. And so it is the case that, like, I think it is more akin to an experience of reading a book where it's taking you on some sort of journey. I mean, it, it is interesting that uh, these are just words. And at the end of the day, you can also take that as a, a commentary on the act of television itself, which in itself is taking words on a page and translating it into images yeah. that, that do hypnotize people. It's not, again, not incidental that the manifesto is written in screenplay format. And right. I think the fact that we see two different versions of the same story told under hypnosis, that really does chip away at one of the deriving premises of the show, which is that under deep regression hypnosis, Mulder remembered that his sister was kidnapped by aliens, and that has driven his quest. And this episode really does force us to deal with the fact that maybe Mulder's recollections are wrong. We've had... You know, we've edged up on that mm-hmm. in, in episodes like Nisei and stuff like that, which have said that, you know, maybe it's not aliens. Maybe it really just is government experimentation on people. And, sure. you know, what, what we see as peop- as aliens are people who have just been so deformed by these experiments as to look non-human. Uh, I mean, if that's the case, then, you know, Mulder's path it may be entirely false. But at the end of the day, you see what you want to see from these and you find your meaning where you where you do uh chrissy happens to join amnesty international and greenpeace uh Mulder joins the fbi and and the x-files 
and what's his name becomes a lineman. So all these yeah. things are different. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, we could talk about this episode probably for three hours, and we've been talking about it for I think like half an hour already. Um, so maybe we should we should move towards wrapping it up. But I, I think there's a couple there's a couple small elements that I that I just want to mention briefly and, and kind of get your thoughts on. So so number one is that. Um, uh, there's an episode I think later in the fifth of the sixth season that that makes a big deal about um, we finally get to see Mulder's bedroom and I actually think we saw it in this episode for the first time uh, when he's at the end watching the Bigfoot and possibly masturbating. Yes, um, I, I thought that was a hotel room, uh, uh, but I don't know. I mean, that looked like a pretty small TV for a hotel room. I mean, I don't mm. re- I don't have a clear memory of what hotel rooms in 1996 were like because I was 15, but yeah. uh, I don't know. It seemed like it was his bedroom, so I don't know. Anyway. But anyway, it doesn't matter that much, but I just wanted to mention it. And then uh, the other thing, of course, is this idea about Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek playing the men in black. Um, I think it's just supposed to be a joke. I don't think there's anything else really to say about it. But... Uh, yeah, I think it's just stunt casting. Like, who's the funniest people that we could get for that? I mean, I love that the 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 UFO guy you know, says, oh, hi, you know, when he sees them. Because... And then later it's revealed it's Alex Trebek. And it's like. Yeah, that probably would be the reaction I had if Alex Trebek suddenly appeared in my room. Because it is, like, the perfect thing to do. Yeah. I mean, like, if it was, like, Bill Clinton or somebody, it would be ridiculous. But Alex yeah. Trebek, you're like, that kind yeah. of guy? Okay. <laughs> and and I love Scully, and I love Gillian Anderson's line reading of... I didn't say it was Alex Trebek. I said it looked a lot like Alex <laughs> Trebek. Yeah. I didn't recognize Jesse Ventura, though, so... Well, that he was in the opening credits. You gotta pay attention, man. I, 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 I didn't see those. Right. I was busy watching the episode as it was. Ah. Listen, I noticed Lucy Liu, so, you know, give me that. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. That's good. That's good work. All right, well, I think we'll we'll leave it there about Jose Chung's From Outer Space. If you have any thoughts on either of these episodes, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. As I said before, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. It also supports our other podcast, Truckabout. We are rapidly nearing the end of the first half of the first season of Star Trek Discovery. This week, we are talking about uh, episode seven of that show. And uh, we're also getting towards the point where we're going to switch back over to Star Trek Voyager. So uh, it would be a good time to get into Truckabout as well. Uh, Rocher does not seem happy that we're doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I <laughs> know uh, the the I mean because on the one hand the sooner we get to Voyager the sooner we get done with Voyager but then we get to Enterprise and I just feel this looming sensation of dread about Enterprise. I'm not going to say you're wrong but to feel <laughs> that. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are on all those places. Tuning in show is our username and as always please leave us an iTunes review for tuning in. It is the best way for new people to find the show. All right. So, here we go. Next week, we're going to be talking about the X-Files episodes Avatar, which is one of my favorite episodes of the show, and Quagmire, which is not one of my favorite episodes of the show, but it is a fan favorite. Now, uh, I do want to say that uh, we usually do this at the end when we kind of move on to another thing. Um, We made a decision, and I think we actually did say this uh, in the first X-Files pilot, maybe, I don't, or first X-Files podcast, I don't remember. Uh, But when we reach the end of the third season in two weeks, um, we're actually going to take a little bit of an X-Files pause. Uh, We're going to do another show. And we kind of decided to do this because the X-Files is extraordinarily long. There's a lot of seasons and a lot of episodes of this show. 
And uh, just to kind of mix things up a little bit, we're, we're going to move on to another show, um, which we'll reveal in a couple weeks. But I, I just wanted to put that bug in everyone's ear that uh, we are going to be taking a short uh, yeah, it's going to be short. Show. It's like I think we're going to be doing. Um, I think it's going to be four, uh, four podcasts. So it's going to be about a month long break of the X Files. So it's going to be fairly short, uh, but we are going to do that. So be prepared for that. But next week, we're not quite done with yet with the third season. Like I said, we're going to be talking about Avatar and Quagmire. Mac, why do you?